The Live Richly podcast is sponsored by Keystone Wealth Partners. For a complimentary retirement map review, visit keystonewealthpartners.com slash map. Welcome to Live Richly, a show where life meets money. Join John Hagenson as he shares practical insights to help you make better financial moves. John is a certified financial planner, holds a master's degree in financial services, and a professional certification from Stanford University. He is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisory firm that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. Welcome to Live Richly, where my goal is to meet you at the intersection of some of life's most important places, so that together we can make progress. I want to start today's podcast acknowledging the absolute devastation and horror that is taking place over in Ukraine. In times like this, it feels quite trivial to be discussing things as unimportant as how to minimize taxes or do a better job investing our money. But this is a podcast focused on personal finances. And so while I approach today's show with an acute awareness and perspective that there are things much more important than people losing their lives across the globe, I will also do my best to provide you with some valuable information around how you can do a great job with your money. I want to start with an idea that I think we all know to be true. And that is you see someone's true character, their core principles, not when times are good, but rather when the difficulty arises. Warren Buffett famously said that when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And there is no one I respect more on this planet than my wife, Brittany. You want to know why? It's because I have witnessed her patience, her grace, and her consistent love for our seven children day in and day out from the moment the first one of them was born. I mean, when we adopted our two older boys, Beck and Shay from Ethiopia at 11 and 9, they had trauma. They had never turned on a light switch. They had never flushed a toilet. They didn't know a word of English. And bless their hearts, I mean, they were experiencing such tremendous loss from their homeland, their language and their culture and their biological family. I mean, everything that they were experiencing was very understandable. But as young parents, we were clueless. We were trying to do the best we could with a lot of nights looking at one another after the kids were in bed or one of them wasn't even home because they had run away. They usually showed up, you know, within a few hours, but we would look at each other and say, what are we doing? Hey, God, did we not hear you correctly? Because you realize we don't know what we're doing. You realize we are not equipped to go through this. Isn't there certainly somebody out there that's better at this than us? But I would see her hit her knees and pray to God to heal our son's hearts. She makes each of our kids feel like they're only children. I mean, that's how they feel because she is so intentional on holidays, on their birthdays, and just all the small moments. And I have so much to learn from that. I admire her. I'm striving to be more of that for our children. I get very distracted with work and whatever else, sports, going for my jogs. And she is just dialed in and focused on the kids. And it's an amazing thing to have in a partner, to watch day in and day out. But what's impressive is that she does that in these difficult moments. When I said, I'm not going to be an airline pilot anymore. I've got a great idea. Let's have no income and enter into a career that I'm basically clueless on. I'm going to be a financial advisor, honey. By the way, that actually was my business card, but I was basically an investment salesperson. 
I was a broker and I wasn't that good at it. And I had no experience. And she started a business as a wedding photographer and carried us financially for a few years. I mean, we, we don't survive without her building her own business. And then we start having all these kids and my business has grown and she's willing voluntarily to say, you know what? The kids need me more than this right now. And I sure love it. And I think I'm pretty good at it. And it gives me a lot of satisfaction, but this isn't the right season in life. But she is my foxhole person. She's the person in my life that I know when times get hard, because there have been plenty of them since I've known her. I can count on her. My question for you is, who is your person? Do you know someone in your life that when times get tough, you can go to them and you are unquestionably confident that they are going to remain unwavering in their principles, regardless of the present circumstances. I mean, when the sun is shining and you just got a raise and you're headed for vacation, it's easy to let somebody merge in front of you on the freeway. How about when you've lost your job, you just found out terrible health news, your marriage is on the rocks, your kids aren't smiling perfectly in your Instagram photos like everyone else's kids do. How do you respond in those moments? Because that's truly a far better indication of who you are and what you prioritize. So often people say money changed that person or money changes people. No, it reveals who they already were. You want to know more about who someone is? Give them a pile of money. This is why sports franchises are always terrified when they've got a very immature 23-year-old and some NBA team's about to give them a four-year deal that's guaranteed at $120 million. If they don't have confidence in that person's maturity and character, it's very risky to drop a pile of money there. If someone's generous, they generally are more generous. If someone is greedy and power hungry, they're usually more of that when you provide them with more money. Let's transition this over to our personal finances. Do you have that foxhole person when it comes to your financial decisions? Because let's face it, the past couple of years have put your investing and financial planning principles to the test. If you want to scan back further, go to the dot-com bubble bursting, the great financial crisis where the markets dropped 53% peak to trough in about 15 months. And so today I want to talk about two different things. The first is what should you be thinking about when it comes to navigating geopolitical unrest, this invasion by Russia of Ukraine? And then secondly, I want to share with you four core principles that we provided at our most recent client coaching event in our presentation. And how have those principles held up over the last couple of years during this pandemic, as we've encountered and combated certain risks that have presented themselves. But before I do, you wanna know why investing is so hard? Why you can't just open a Robinhood account, buy some growth stocks like people were doing during the pandemic? And then you, know, you open up the app and you go, well, I'm up 40%, why would I need an advisor? This is so darn easy. Remember Zoom, the darling of the pandemic? It was at one point larger than Exxon. Now it's about one-tenth the size of Exxon. Hilton Hotels, which at some point basically had zero occupants during COVID, is now up more since the beginning of the pandemic than Zoom. So just take prior to the pandemic, you went through the pandemic, now back up with Zoom going crazy and Hilton dropping through the floor. Well, they're both up about 40% now in total. Zoom at one point was up 450%. And as Batnick and Carlson talked about on their podcast, Animal Spirits, there is an entire list of stocks right now that are down more than 
Now, the broad markets aren't down nearly that much, but this type of market volatility and corrections can shake out a lot of the garbage. It gets rid of some of the excess. And here's what's really wild. Some of these companies are in really good shape. It's just that the expectations of future earnings were so high that even with massive growth, the stocks are plummeting. Take Shopify, for example. According to their most recent earnings report, their revenue was $4.6 billion in 2021, which is triple what it was in 2019. So the revenue's tripled in a couple of years. Seven of their companies IPO'd, their merchant base doubled, a million businesses launched, and it's down 52% this year alone. In fact, it was down 20% after earnings were reported. You say, how can this be? Well, because at one point it was trading at 60 times earnings, not sustainable. But this is what happens to a lot of companies when they become overpriced. Netflix at one point sold off 80%. Amazon's been down over 70% off its highs. At different times, Apple, the largest company, has had multiple drops of over 50%. But when it comes to Shopify, when expectations are that you are going to increase revenue by more than 57% every single year, you get what Michael Kitsis calls the tyranny of the denominator, which is you just get so large, it's almost impossible to have the same growth rates. But it's just another reminder of why it is so hard to pick the right stocks. All right, now I'm going to transition over to this Russia invasion of Ukraine and what history tells us regarding how we should be thinking about our personal finances in light of this. Creative Planning CEO and President Peter Malouk wrote on this earlier in the week, and I'll be referencing some of that article. But the first thing is we can expect energy prices to soar. Russia is a key energy producer, and as they face steep sanctions, we can expect energy supplies to contract while demand should stay high. And if you're wondering, energy is their primary export. But while my kids look at a globe or a map and say, wow, Russia's huge, dad. Geographically, yes. But they're a third-rate economic power at this point. Their GDP is smaller than the state of Texas and only slightly larger than the state of Florida. It's $1.7 This is not an economic powerhouse. But they are extraordinarily powerful and have a lot of leverage over Europe. And regardless of your personal opinion, the reality is that Europe closed down a lot of their fossil fuel operations in favor of building windmills, and now they're heavily reliant on Russian gas and oil. And energy prices are already higher than typical due to this global surge in demand coupled with supply chain issues. But how about if you're diversified? Say, John, what does this look like for me? Well, generally speaking, we can expect some weakness across a diversified portfolio as markets price in the fact that the conflict could spread. It could become a larger global war. But we are seeing today, as I record this, the S&P up two and a quarter percent, the Dow up two and a half percent, the NASDAQ up three percent. So I would say in the short term, you'll see a lot of volatility because there's more uncertainty. And remember, volatility can be both up and down. It works both ways. In fact, more often than not, that volatility works to your favor as an investor because the market continues to grow. But in this article from Peter Malouk, there is a chart used that showed 20 geopolitical events and the stock market reactions to those. And rather than going through all of them, I'll summarize. Only five of the 20 took more than 50 days from the bottom to recover. And only two of the 20 were more than 100 days. None were more than a year. So the worst was the Pearl Harbor attack, 12-7-1941, where the one-day toll was 3.8%. The total drawdown was 19.8%. 
It took 143 days to hit the bottom and then 307 to recover. So it was a little less than a year and a half in total before you were back to what you were prior to that fatal attack. June 25th of 1950, North Korea invades South Korea. The one-day drop was 5.4%. Total drawdown was 12.9%. It bottomed in 23 days and recovered in 82. How about 9-11? The one-day drop, 4.9%. Total drawdown, 11.6%. It bottomed in 11 days and recovered in 31. And this should serve as a great reminder that very important and impactful events in our lives and in the world do not always affect future earnings prospects for the broad markets. And the reason for that is because the market cares about one thing and one thing only, the future earnings of companies. So here's what the market cares about. Does this event impact whether you're going to go to Chick-fil-A and McDonald's with your grandkids? Are you still going to buy Nike running shoes? Are you still going to buy an iPad or download things from the app store or get on Amazon and make purchases or go to the grocery store and buy groceries? or go get your car fixed, or pay for the kid's private school, or take a vacation to Maui. And in many cases, even with the horrific invasion that we're seeing, the market says those companies are likely to make more money a few years from now than they are today. And standing alone, this military event's not likely to make a long-term difference to a disciplined investor over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Under some scenarios, there may even be some opportunities that present themselves as a result of the short-term volatility. For example, rebalancing, harvesting losses, more aggressively Roth converting. So while our hearts go out from a humanity level due to this devastation, it should not impact your long-term strategy or your ability to accomplish your goals when it comes to your financial plan. All right, it's time for my segment on really, really bad advice. Just this week, a client came in with C-share mutual funds, which are really expensive, I'll talk about in a moment. But the worst part is that those had been purchased with the proceeds of a surrendered annuity contract that they only held a short period of time that had been sold by the original insurance agent. So here's what happened. You really need this super long-term contract that pays me a really big commission. Okay, that sounds good. It's safe. I like the idea of being protected. Two years later, that advisor isn't making any more money because they already got a fat commission. They go back to this person and say, you know what? I don't think this is actually a good thing after all. Not because really anything's materially changed, just because I'm not making any more money if you leave it here for the next 14 more years in this 16-year contract. So let's put it in this other thing. Okay, that sounds good. What's that going to cost me you know, upfront? Oh, nothing. There's no upfront costs. It just happened to be a C-share mutual fund that now pays that advisor 1% from the fund company internally that's never seen on the back end. And the fund itself was costing just over 2% in expense ratios. Of course, again, all internal and the client wasn't seeing it. This is why you work with a fiduciary who doesn't charge commissions. Because otherwise, you don't know in many cases how you're paying for these things. And although no advisor is going to be perfect in their recommendations, they're humans, remember that they are human, which means they follow incentives. And if they're operating with you in a compensation model where one thing pays them 10 times as much as something else, they're more likely to recommend that because again, it's not that they're terrible, it's that they're a human being. And if one thing makes them 20 grand and one thing makes them 200, not grand, dollars, which do you suppose they might recommend? Go to a fiduciary who is charging you fees so that when they tell you, I think you should do this over this, you know and can feel confident that there's no monetary reason that they're telling you one thing over another. 
These conflicts still exist, and it amazes me that I still see people with large sums of money tangled up in these conflict of interest webs. Our Bible verse of the day comes from my favorite book, James chapter 4, verse 17, and it says, So whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, to him, capital H, him, God, it is sin. A more famous passage from the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Romans in chapter 7, verse 15 says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I don't have washboard abs, not because I don't understand how to get there. I'm sure Brittany would love it. But outside of me getting in my jogs and a little 10-minute Peloton workout here and there, I don't put in the time or have the discipline to actually do what it would take. I have a cocktail here and there. I'll eat sugar. I'm not doing ab ripper X. Remember that from the P90X days? And so I shouldn't expect to look like some 22-year-old Orange County lifeguard. But it's not out of a lack of desire. It's just I don't have the structure, the framework, the discipline, the accountability to actually see it through. And that's what I want to transition to as we conclude the podcast. What are the investing principles? What are those core principles that I believe every investor should know? And I want to share with you the risk that they help reduce and mitigate, as well as practically how has this principle held up over this tumultuous last couple of years? We've had a global pandemic. We're at 40-year record inflation numbers. We spent over $7 trillion as a federal government last year, and our GDP to national debt ratio has never been higher. You know, we're like on par with Italy and Lebanon, as I talked about a couple weeks ago. So risk number one is inflation. This is that hidden tax where you go broke slowly. Inflation, depending on where you're looking, is up 7 to 8%. But the reality is many of the subcategories that we interact with on a daily basis are up far more than that. Beef, last 12 months, up 24%. Hotels, up 26%. Gasoline, up 51%. Used cars and trucks, up 26%. Bacon, Yes, I said it. Bacon up 20%. By the way, I was bragging on my wife earlier. I got to knock her down a peg or two. A couple Saturdays ago, she's opening up the whole house and walking around going, I just, ugh, it smells like bacon in here. I just cannot stand that. The whole house smells like bacon because she had made pancakes and bacon. I looked at her and just said, like, this might be the most un-American, weird thing I've ever heard from you. Like who doesn't like the smell of bacon on a Saturday morning? Like, I don't even know who you are anymore. Like, can you be trusted? Are you an alien? So anyways, bacon up 20%. Vehicle rentals up 39%. Eggs up 12%. Just to name a few. Which of these four core principles that I'm going to share with you mitigated that risk? The answer, owning stocks. But John, what about gold? Well, gold in 2021 was down 4.33%. The aggregate bond index, down 3.5%. The broad stock market, as measured by the Russell 3000, up 24%. And the reason is pretty simple. Companies increase prices to maintain profits. Which is why if you've been going to Chipotle, I absolutely love Chipotle. I just saw on their earnings call that they have now raised prices three different times. And their CEO basically said, we've seen no resistance in demand. Like no drop off whatsoever. But we had to raise prices because all the ingredients were costing more. Risk number two is you are invested in underperforming asset classes. And the principle that mitigates that risk, staying well diversified. Take early in the pandemic, January of 2020 through October of 2020. Large US stocks as measured by the S&P 500 was up 2.77%. 
So a little bit north of flat after going through the fastest bear market we've seen, 35% in six weeks. You say, that's not too bad. But if you were in small cap value, down 20% from January of 2020 through that time period. But here's the challenge. Right about then you say, wow, why do I own small cap value? I mean, they're terrible. What am I doing suffering through this? And in many cases, you make the change because you're in this underperforming asset class. And the next six to seven months, small cap value was up 62.5%. Then the next six months, small cap value was down two and a quarter and large growth was up 14. It reminds me of when you're in stop and go traffic and the lane that you're in is never moving and the lanes next to you always seem to have everyone flying past you going 30, 35 miles an hour. And finally, if you're in the car with your spouse, because my wife is, uh, she's the best driver in the world when I'm the one driving. Okay. Now she actually would say that she's the best driver of the two of us just in general. And I'm going to digress for a moment. She says this because when we were dating and in our early twenties, we had her entire Ford Mustang packed with stuff to go down to ASU. And I backed out of a parking spot and hit a palm tree. This crazy motel in Northern California had palm trees planted in the middle of the parking lot. Makes no sense. So we put a little tiny dent in her bumper. And because of that, she continues to say, well, I'm a better driver. It's like, no, honey, let's have a parallel parking contest. Let's drive in and out of traffic and heavy traffic. She's like, no, 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 that doesn't count. How many accidents have you been in? And how many have I been in? And by the way, she should have gotten about three or four tickets, but the cop walks up to the window and she's being really polite and she's just her sweet, cute self. And they're like, oh, just a warning. You slow down a little bit. That police officer comes up to me. I'm getting a ticket. Whether right or wrong, that's just the reality of it. But anyway, back to my traffic story. Your spouse is usually saying, why are we sitting in this lane? And about the time you switch to the other lane, it immediately stops. And the lane that you were just in starts moving. This is what happens when you're trying to jump from one asset category to another. And the principle that mitigates this risk is staying well diversified. You don't have to guess between the two if you own a little bit of both. Risk number three is market volatility, both real and expected. And the principle that mitigates that, stay prudent and don't try to time the market. I mean, think about this. We had the fastest bear market in history. And then we quickly came out and we're hitting record highs. We had this contentious election. And the challenge is that recoveries are dramatic. From January 1st of 2020 to March 23rd of 2020, the market dropped 32%. And it was super easy to panic. And most people thought, what optimism do we have that this isn't going to keep going down? There's no vaccine available. We don't know a whole lot about this virus. The entire world is shut down. Why wouldn't this get worse? And then the market went up 36% between March 24th and October 31st. But still, everything was locked down. The market was now at all-time highs. So a lot of people there were thinking, it's time to get out. I don't know how this market came back. Like I was in an airport and no one's flying. My whole company's still working remote. And I want a sidebar on all-time highs. The next time anyone around you talks about that it's an all-time high, tell them it doesn't matter and should not change their investment strategy. The one-year look-ahead period since 1926 coming off of all-time highs is 13.9%. The three-year, 105 The five-year look-ahead coming off of all-time highs, 9.9%. Translation, there's no evidence that you should expect significantly better or worse returns coming off of all-time highs. In fact, the market's at all-time highs or near all-time highs a lot because it's growing over long periods of time. 
But hopefully you didn't jump out when it finally hit all-time highs October 31st of 2020, because starting from November 1st of 2020, through the end of 2021, so a little over a year, the market went up another 45%. And so again, you mitigate the risk of market volatility by not trying to jump in and out. Stay prudent and don't market time. And the fourth and final risk is rising interest rates. And the way you mitigate it is by owning high quality short-term bonds. And I know you're thinking to yourself, John, we're this deep into this podcast and you're going to talk about basically the least sexy thing ever, bonds. And then you're going to make it even more boring and talk about short-term bonds, you know, that are producing maybe 2% interest while inflation's at eight. Get out of here. I've got other stuff on my podcast stack to listen to. I know, but just hear me out. The reason in rising interest rate environments, you don't want to be long in bonds chasing yield is practically because you are tying up and locking in a historically low interest rate right now for 30 years. It's the exact opposite reason why you want to lock in a 30-year mortgage at today's rates. But when we're talking about bonds, you're the bank in the mortgage scenario. And you may say, well, John, if I'm 10 years into a 30-year bond and rates have risen, can't I get rid of it? Isn't there a market? Yes, the bond market's actually over twice as large as the stock market. A lot of people don't realize that. So there is a very active secondary market, but think about this practically. If 10 years into your 30-year bond, it's got 20 years left and it's paying you an interest rate of 3% and a CD is now paying 6 or 7% and current 20-year bonds are paying 7% and you're holding up a sign at the off-ramp of the freeway saying, somebody buy my bonds. Who in the heck wants them with half a brain? They're going to say, well, okay, I guess I'll buy them from you, but I want them for a huge discount. And if you're wondering what that discount will be, the market will efficiently price it down to give an equivalent yield to maturity of all current 20-year bonds that are of similar credit quality. And in this scenario, if rates really were that dramatically different and there were 20 years left, you would take a massive loss to sell those bonds. Or you just sit around and be miserable and jealous of all your friends while you collect your 3% interest rate and all of them are getting seven. But conversely, when you look at short-term bonds, they're regularly maturing and then you are able to renew your new bonds at the higher interest rates that are now available. They are much less volatile and they're liquid. And when times get tough, they tend to hold up very well. For example, if you look from August of 2021 through right now, currently, long-term bonds are down 6% and short-term bonds are flat. And so again, to recap these four core investing principles that I believe everyone should adhere to and know well, number one, own stocks. Number two, stay diversified. Number three, don't time the market. And number four, own short-term bonds to dampen volatility and create liquidity in bad markets. And so that's all I have for you on today's podcast. I am grateful as always that you tuned in, but now it's time for me to go because I told you my wife makes all of our kids feel special on their birthdays and on holidays. Well, this is my birthday weekend and she's got a whole deal planned up in the snow in Northern Arizona for us. And so it's time for me to sign off. But before I do, remember, before acting upon anything discussed today, speak with a financial advisor near you. And if you'd like our help, you can visit us anytime at KeystoneWealthPartners.com for a complimentary retirement map review. If you have found this podcast helpful, feel free to leave us a review or share it on social media. That helps us get discovered. And remember, we are the wealthiest society in the history of planet Earth. Let's make our money matter. John is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an SEC-registered investment advisor that manages over a half billion dollars for clients across the nation. All opinions expressed by John or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Keystone Wealth Partners. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Keystone Wealth Partners may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.